Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We will be engaging with the words of Parshat Behar this morning. You'll recall we're in a leap year, so there's a second Adar added to the calendar, which means we split Parshiot that are often most often read together. So Behar Bechukotai are usually read together. We split them out this year and read Behar, which is uh, this year, Leviticus 25. We're going to start at 25-23. This is a collection of legislation. You know, we've been working our way through the Holiness Code and now we come to some additional laws about uh, land tenure and indenture. So indentured servitude and land tenure. Last year we discussed the land business. We discussed Yovel, right, Jubilee, and uh, that in theory land couldn't be owned in perpetuity. First of all, who does the land belong to? Correct. So we lease it from God. We have user rights, and if you are the one who's holding the land, you have more rights than anybody else. Ultimately, the land doesn't belong to anybody. It belongs to itself. It belongs to God. So whatever we mean by ownership, by definition, is temporary. But it's even made even more temporary by the institution of Yovel, of the Jubilee, And so whenever someone purchases land, they are purchasing that land for however many years it is until you go. So nothing is permanent, right? It it remains in this cycle of um, resetting the, the, not clock, but, you know, resetting circumstances for people uh, every two generations. A generation is 20 years, so... Every two generations, there's an opportunity for someone whose family has been in dire straits to have the playing field level. All right, so that's what we talked about last year in the second triennial division. And we're going to look this year uh, at the last part of Bihar, starting at 23. So we're coming off the laws of Yovel, coming off the laws of land tenure. Uh, and this is the concluding <laughs> part of that. Someone read, please, at 23. <clears throat> But the land must not be sold beyond reclaim, for the land is mine. You are about strangers resident with me. Throughout the land that you hold, you must provide for the redemption of the land. All right, so we're moving from that idea into this next one, George. If one of your kin is in straits and has to sell part of a holding, the nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what the relatives have sold. If a person has no one to be a redeemer but prospers and acquires enough to redeem with, the years since the sale shall be computed and the difference shall be refunded to the person to whom it was sold, so that the person returns to that holding. If that person lacks sufficient means to recover it, what was sold shall remain with the purchaser until the jubilee. In the jubilee year it shall be released, so that the person returns to that holding. So we now we're looking at what happens when somebody is in uh, dire straits and has to sell part of their land, has to sell part of their holding. It's the obligation on the closest relative who is considered the redeemer, the one who's obligated to redeem. That person needs to come and redeem the land um, and give it back to their family member, uh, but sometimes people don't have someone to redeem the land, and so we have other ways of um, dealing with that uh, financial situation until Yovel, right? Because at Yovel, everything's going to return. All right, so go on, George, 29. If someone sells a dwelling house in a walled city, it may be redeemed until a year has elapsed since its sale. The redemption period shall be a year. If it is not redeemed before a full year has elapsed, the house in the wall city shall pass to the purchaser beyond reclaimed throughout the ages. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. But houses and villages that have no encircling walls 
shall be classed as open country. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released through the Jubilee. As for the cities of Levi, the houses in the cities it holds, Levi shall forever have the right of redemption. Such property as may re be redeemed from Levi, houses sold in the city it holds, shall be released through the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of Levi are its holdings among the Israelites. But the unenclosed land about its city cannot be sold, for that is its holding for all time. All right, so complicated laws about differences <laughs> yes. between in the city, outside the city, agricultural um, setups and fields versus, uh, you know, a mansion inside the city. Um, I want to push on to 35. Can I ask a question? What is sure. the year of Jubilee? I must have missed that somehow. Why the Levites? So every 50 years, property would return to the original owner. Independent of all these things. This is dependent on the Jubilee. So if I buy land from you, I'm only buying it for however many years there are until the Jubilee. So the price of what you're selling is based on how many years left till the Jubilee. If it's 49 years, right, you're going to charge more than if it's three years. Exactly. It's like you're buying a leasehold interest. That's exactly right, what he just said. Who's the original owner? How could there be an original owner if God owns all of So whoever presumably um, owned it when these laws you know, originate, there's an understanding of who's holding the, the deed to the land. Even though it's owned by God, people still owned their their farms and their crops and right, they they still had the right of exclusive use of that land with the understanding that they had to leave the edges of the field and the corners and all of that for the poor. Yeah. But there was an understanding of of it's kind of a long term lease. So would never essentially leave the family, whatever the original family Right. That's the idea. Now, there's a lot of discussion in the scholarly literature about whether or not this actually ever happened. Yeah. Lots of conversation about that. Because if that really happened, you displace so many people, right? And then what makes me invest in working the land if I know all of those orchards are going to revert back to another family? I mean, there's just, yeah. there's lots of levels at which people think this is kind of the ideal that Toro's expressing, but wasn't very practical and probably didn't actually happen this way. Is it possible there's any relation to the concept of sort of the feudal serf, uh, you know, a monarchy being the sovereign type of concept where, you know, in, before republics were formed, I mean, the king basically owned all the land, and there are times there might have been certain, you know, Peasants or other other aristocracy who might have had the right to use or own certain pieces of land, but ultimately, you know, the the sovereign and the title was really resting with the king. So, you know, one of the radical moves for ancient Israel and and the one of the really innovative things about the Hebrew Bible is that there is no king. That the the understanding right when this stuff is written, we're talking about the period of the judges, right? There's a remember we did the diagram last week in great detail, and if you place this some of this in historical context, we're we're talking about a period where there wasn't a king. That it was a loose confederation of tribes who had familial or clan holdings, and then a judge arose whenever there was a national emergency. You know, the Philistines are coming, the Edomites are coming, um and so from Transjordan, right? So when, when something like that would happen, a leader would arise, a judge, and would be a military <clears throat> leader, would make decisions um, with a council for the region, for all 12 you know, areas of land holding, uh, and then would go back to being a judge. Like, wouldn't, I mean, would, you know, would leave that position of leadership. So we think there was a loose confederation, some kind of council, tribal council, so it doesn't start with a monarch, which is interesting. So do you remember what happens? How do we wind up with with Saul? 
Biblical trivia. Hmm? The people demanded a king. We want to be like all the other nations. Right? And Samuel, the prophet, who's kind of in charge, is furious. And says, you have betrayed God. That you are asking now to be like all the other nations. That you want a king. Like this is, you've got a king. It's the king of kings. And that's not enough for you? Like you're not satisfied with that? Um, and he's very upset about it. Shmuel is very upset about it. Um, and then we have him, right, find the king to be Saul. So the one of the reason I bring this up, Rick, to your point, is one of the things Samuel says to the people is, "Do you understand what you're creating? The king will own everything, will own your sons and daughters, and can take them as you know laundresses and." Stewards and butlers and you know and servants like it, everything will belong to the king and he shouldn't take all that stuff but he will have the legal right to do that that is what you're creating are you aware of that and they say yes we want a king mm-hmm. right and of course that's what winds up happening is we have Saul then we have who's after Saul David. we have Saul then we have David who's after David Saul. so from Saul to Solomon, right, is about how long? About a hundred years. After Solomon, what happens? The United Monarchy splits. That's how long (laughs) that business was successful. Right? So it turns out it was not a good system once they... Once they have a king, it's kind of a it's kind of a commentary on what happens whenever people are want a strong leader. <laughs> so, what is he talking about when people want a strong leader? So, I, I mean, I, I hundred percent agree that the danger is we want a leader that we think. It is strong by the by the behavior or the evidence that's all about this, right? And and true strength in leadership is very different, mm-hmm. right? So I I would just I would friendly amendment to what you said is that you know what people generally perceive of as strong, which is not necessarily strength, right? And um, and that's what undid them, you know, was that. That strength also gave all kinds of license to behavior that wound up splitting the kingdom and wound up over taxation, uh, over taxation by Solomon for his building his wall around the temple and everything else left the people resentful and destitute and stressed and the, the government was under huge strain and it ultimately broke apart. It fell apart. The modern example is the people wanting George Washington to be king, and he had the strength to refuse, although he was not perfect in other ways. Um, but there's a tendency to want to be led. Mm-hmm. Um, and because if someone has absolute authority, it excuses my responsibility, right? And the beauty of this country, I believe, um, and the founding, you know, folk of this country was really understanding that, like truly understanding that it is our responsibility to share in a um, in a true representative democracy, <laughs> to share responsibility for selecting leadership and for leadership to change, you know, based on the will of the people every Four years. Right, and since we're doing a civics lesson, that actually evolved because there's also a constitutional monarchy mm-hmm. where there is still a queen. There's a queen of England mm-hmm. who the sovereign rests in the queen, and she doesn't change. Um, yet there is a constitutional parliamentary form of government where the government is representative of the people and does change. Right, and you have those balances of power in the biblical period as well. Even when there's a king, there's a prophet. So there's a there's the king, but there's the critic of the king, um, and so that there's there's the king, there's the prophet, and you had the priesthood. So and you had a constitution, 
<laughs> right? So the people had access to this constitution and were supposed to be teaching it to their children, right? And speaking of it, they were supposed to be familiar with how the king was supposed to behave. The king, by the way, an interesting little side detail that is completely useless anywhere else in the universe, except in this room, um, is that the king was supposed to write a Sefer Torah. The king is commanded to write a Sefer Torah. It takes over a year, full time, for a scribe to write a Sefer Torah. So figuring the king is not doing that full time, okay, maybe he takes a year to do that, but if not, it means he's fairly consistently engaged for a long period of time in writing pieces of Torah, right? So in, in effect, need, he needs to write the Constitution. But it's a very long Constitution, right? Way longer than, than ours. Um, and presumably was to be governed by this Constitution and held accountable by the people who had full access to it. What, you know, what that means in reality is a whole nother another conversation. That's a wonderful way to yeah. ensure that the king knows what's in the constitution. That's right. Right? So it's because it's easy to say, oh, I didn't read that part, right? You know. But if you've written a Sefer Torah, there's there's no excuse, right? You know, were you initial on every page when you're buying a house, you know, that you've read this page. But I was gonna say today, because of the internet and computer and everything else. Even our laws are not properly designed at this point to deal with all of the, the, the uh, booming or chaos what has brought to us to our, because we're dealing with other nations and with ourselves for that matter. There's no, they have a problem and they have to always ask some uh, family who are in law and they say he has to write, come up with new laws all the time because of the changes. It's so rapid. So, I think always law has evolved. We need to evolve, exactly. Right? Law evolves to meet changing circumstances. So that the constitution that we have, this constitution, would have addressed new problems, but in light, as we still do in Jewish law, we still interpret Torah law responding to circumstances that they could not possibly have imagined. Is a microwave kosher? Can you cook something meat in a microwave and then something dairy? Where are you going to look in here to answer that question? So you could say, well, this is not sufficient, right? But there's been millennia of discussion of these laws and applying them to other situations, and it's those permutations that we then apply to the microwave. So what's the answer? The answer is you put a glass of water in and you nuke it for two minutes or whatever it is and it kashers the oven so that you can then use it for... The answer is you have two microwaves. That is not true. It is not true. You you kasher the microwave. Oh, it's another alternative. Certainly. But most people would rather stick a glass of water in there than than have two microwaves. Um, but right, right, so how do we get there? Right? Well, there's lots of case history and case law, you know, about situations that then evolve into something that, okay, well, we apply that to the microwave. But there's argument about, no, that's not the law that applies to microwave. <laughs> right? Because it's not fire, or it's not porous, or it's not clay. Right? You know, so then you have to pick which case do we apply. And that's the Talmud, is a lot of those arguments about we have a situation, what does one do, to what part of Torah or other law does one look, and then there's a big argument, just like in American constitutional law, about is abortion about right to privacy or murder? Right? Which, which set of things from the law do you apply to the case of abortion? And it's caused, right, a huge protracted... Um, Debate and battle in in the court system for you know as long as we can remember, well, as long as I can remember. Uh, all right, so thirty five. Thank you, Richard. That means you get to read. If your kinsman, being in straits, comes under your authority, 
and you hold him as though a resident alien, let him live by your side. Do not exact from him advance or accrued interest, but fear your God. Let him live by your side as your kinsman. Do not lend him your money at advance interest, or give him your food at accrued interest. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. If your kinsman under you continues in straits and must give himself over to you, do not subject him to the treatment of a slave. He shall remain with you as a hired or bound laborer. He shall serve with you only until the Jubilee year. Then he and his children with him shall be free of your authority. He shall go back to his family and return to his ancestral home. For they are my servants whom I free from the land of Egypt. They may not give themselves over into servitude. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly. You shall fear your God. Such male and female slaves as you may have, it is from the nations round about you that you may acquire female and female slaves. You may also buy them from among the children of alien residents among you or from their families that are among you whom they begot in your land. These shall become your property. You may keep them as a possession for your children after you, for them to inherit as property for all time. Such you may treat as slaves. But as for your Israelite kinsmen, no one shall rule ruthlessly over the other. Go on. If a resident alien among you has prospered, and your kinsman being in straits comes under his authority and gives himself over to the resident alien among you, or to an offshoot of an alien's family, he shall have the right of redemption even after he has given himself over. One of his kins kinsmen shall redeem him, or his uncle or his uncle's son shall redeem him, or any one of his family who is of his own flesh shall redeem him, or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. He shall compute with his purchaser the total from the year he gave himself over to him until the jubilee year. The price of his sale shall be applied to the number of years as though it were for a term as a hired laborer under the other's authority. If many years remain, he shall pay back for his redemption in proportion to his purchase price. And if few years remain until the jubilee year, he shall so compute. He shall make payment for his redemption according to the years involved. He shall be under his authority as a laborer hired by the year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. If he has not been redeemed in any of those ways, he and his children with him shall go free in the jubilee year. For it is to me that the Israelites are servants. They are my servants who I freed from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord of Thank you. Interestingly, the Parsha concludes at verse 2 of chapter 26. So rather than ending where it makes perfect sense to end, where Richard just stopped reading, the Parsha goes on to, You shall not make idols for yourselves, or set up for yourselves carved images or pillars, or place figured stones in your land to worship upon. For I am Adonai your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and venerate my sanctuary, mine, Adonai's. Why? <laughs> So, we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, so we went from what happens with property that you lose because you're not doing well financially, um, and then rights of redemption of that property, obligations around redemption of that property, and now we go to the issue in the ancient world of human labor as property, as a kind of, um, not property, but... Um, Commodity, right? It's a commodity. Well, I guess it's not really a commodity. Hmm? So, it, but it's not the same as property exactly, but it's related because it's the product of my labor that's being talked about. It's a claim on labor. It's a claim on my labor. If I'm an Israelite, it's the claim on my labor. That's different from property. Were they free to live somewhere else and do other things? Generally, no. Because the claim on their labor meant they worked all day. That is what they owed. So was the, there anything else besides their labor that wasn't owned? Or, you see what I'm saying? If, if it's the claim on their labor, but there was nothing else that was separate that they had their own determination of, then that's everything. So we have to be mindful of putting, right, our Western <coughs> contemporary 
worldview and overlaying that right on this. We have to on some level because those, that's how we ask questions. Um, I'm not sure that question would make much sense in the ancient world. The question of what do I own? I'm paying off the time that I have to work because I've lost everything. There isn't something else. I'm not going to go take an art class. There, there isn't anything. You work from the time you get up until dark, and then you go home to your wife and children. Well, that's that's separate. So they have wives and children. children Correct. So, you know, presumably there's a family life, but your family life is not separate from the manner on which you live and work. We think of ourselves as, I want to go home after my job. When you've lost everything, there is no home. You live where you work. You live and are fed by the people for whom you, the people you serve. So we kind of go, okay, well, how is that different from slavery? However, drive down the street in the Palisades and see what happens when you don't have somewhere to live and work. So, you know, we, we, we just have to always kind of stay in this really weird off balance place between our own, um, judgments of what is freedom, what is property, what is slavery versus, um, what is a social and economic system that didn't leave a lot of people in the street. Is that the same for a resident alien versus European? So that that is a distinction that Torah makes, right? So Torah makes a distinction between an Israelite and a foreigner, right? Or someone who was born in the land that isn't Israelite, Um, and that is a distinction we are, of course, uncomfortable. Or is it claim on work? It is slavery. Slavery, right? Yes, yes, because slavery was. in the ancient world, absolutely fundamental to the economic system functioning. So if you're at any bar about mitzvah, you'll hear me say um, that in the ancient Near East, two-thirds of the population were slaves. One-third, or indentured servants, one-third were legally free. But that wasn't just the ancient world. I mean, arguably that continued through, you know, Certainly, the 18th century and through to the middle of the 19th century. I mean, mm-hmm. slavery was pervasive all over the world, and I still mean, is. It's still and is. still is. Yes. I mean, in, in this country, we tend to, you know, focus on slavery in our country and our narrative, and um, but there, there, it was going on all over, and. Um, Legally, as opposed to today, where it's still all over. Correct. Illegally, so now right. there's a consciousness that. It's bad. And we love to congratulate ourselves, don't we, on having abolished slavery while we turn an absolute blind eye to the conditions that drive people in our country into slavery and to the economic conditions around the world that make slavery very much a thriving industry, as Rabbi Rubin says, there are more slaves in the world today than ever before. Well, that's a loaded comment. Far more. Far more slaves today than ever before. The population's a lot bigger. I mean, that that may be true, but saying we turn a blind eye, um, you know, I... I don't know where my sweatpants were made, and I never asked, and they could have been made by a slave. Easy. So I think that's the blind eye. Mm-hmm. Well, that that we freak we Look, it's all it's all frequently um, it's, don't want to know. Yes. Don't want to be bothered. Yes. Don't want to be made uncomfortable. Yes. By the fact that we support all kinds of not institutions, all kinds of enterprises, including policies that keep people in a place where slavery is the only option you know, and or human trafficking. When we buy cell phones with con- that don't have conflict-free metals in them, we are supporting the action of soldiers coming in and ousting, killing the men, ousting the women and children from their land so that they can take those minerals and put them in our cell phones. 
And these women and children are now displaced and often wind up as slaves of, of one form or another. But, but, but does that mean that we should, you know, that the world should be doing without rare metals when you look at the benefits overall to humanity? I'm just talking about cell phones. This is not a zero-sum game. No, this is not an either-or. It, it's, I, I agree it's not an either-or, but, but I say that back to you. It's not an either-or. It's not an absolute. So, you know, I, I think it's, um, look, I think everyone agrees that we should all personally be aware of these issues and to the extent that we can care about it and we can work towards it and we can affect policies of our country or the world that do things positively, that's all great. But we have to understand that it's, it isn't a zero-sum game. So to, to say that you're using a cell phone that has rare metals, okay, because there's a lot of things, I mean, rare metals are in everything we do and there's so many of these things that are helping humanity Tremendously, but they're not all sourced from Africa from and right, well, right. many are, and that's an issue. And we should be doing something. I'm just, okay, I'm just that's all I'm to... saying, Rick. That is all I'm saying. Right. We should be doing more. We should be doing right. way more. We should all be demanding of Verizon. I won't purchase your phone unless and until I know that it, those minerals in that phone do, metals do not come from what we know is the practice of. Conflict in order to acquire them. That, that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't have cell phones. I'm not saying they don't improve our lives. I'm saying we are not terribly interested in pushing the issue of benefiting from that at the expense of children who are now enslaved. I mean, that, the that's all I'm saying. Around. I mean, there are very the diamond, right. right? The diamond industry in particular. There are very few people who won't sign a pledge that says none of the diamonds we use in our jewelry come from, you know, they're conflict free diamonds. They will or won't. No, no. They, they, basically, nobody uses, in principle, I mean, as yeah. far as I know, nobody right. is using, no reputable yeah. manufacturer uses diamonds that come from conflict zones. They're all conflict free diamonds. Because there's a, been enough public outcry and pressure that now they'll sign that pledge and take that extra step. Today is the first I've ever heard of that with cell phones. I never knew that, and I think there's a need for education out there about that. 100%. We'll talk to David Taylor, right? Who, this was his whole project for his bar mitzvah. He then took it even further and is working with Jewish World Watch and, um, and has a campaign to have us. Right, but then, then do you, so you, you can't use a computer or other people again. Again, there's worldwide benefit to these microchips. No, no, it's not saying the pressure of the manufacturers to make them. But everything today is made. I mean, everything we have here is made in China or other places, everywhere. And we cannot, we, of course we have pressure, we have to do, but we cannot be the conscious of the world completely. We can do something to a certain extent, but at the same time, we cannot shoot ourselves on the foot either. Of course not. Mike, what all I'm saying is, when I go to sleep at night, I can promise you, there is not a day that I go to sleep where I feel like I've done enough. Not one day. If I could go to sleep feeling like I've done enough, I can't do it all. We can't do it all. Do we go to sleep, really honestly go to sleep with a cheshbon on Efesh, an accounting of the soul? Do we really go to sleep feeling like, today I did what I could? I, I don't go to sleep that way. And what I'm saying is collectively, we're not going to sleep feeling good if we're honest about how much we have done, how much we are educating, how much we are talking about this, how much time do we spend lobbying, you know, Knowing the issues, how to vote, how to campaign for whatever it is that we know we can do to make a difference. We, we, we don't want to be bothered. We just, we, I'm not blaming us. I'm here to raise the issues that Torah calls us into. And, and we have to be honest if we're going to be engaging with this seriously. We, we have to be honest. That, that's all. And look, we are where we are. And I'm not judge, well, I guess I am judging. Um, <laughs> But I think we like to talk about we would never endorse slavery. And all I'm doing is naming the fact that we endorse it all the time. There's a lot that we can do, and it can be slow, but it can happen. There's a wonderful and not that recent book called The Slave Next Door. And in it, there's it's an exhaustive research of all these different kinds of modern-day slavery. And one of the examples is... Uh, tomato pickers in the United States, and I'm not talking about migrant workers paid too little, but actually people not even paid at all and kept 
confined, shot if they left. There is actually a growing feeling of success for getting big companies like Walmart or Costco or supermarkets to check their supply chain to make sure that the growers that they're using are not doing that. And the, it's sort of a groundswell, and it's gaining more attention. And the LA Times last year, their study about Mexican labor practices is causing some change. So it can be slow, but you can do something more where maybe you're still going to have your cell phone to Google it up. But it's an awareness, and there's there's all kinds of places. There's so many tremendously too many places where we can actually make a difference in that. That's just another example that I wanted to share because it's actually starting to, to have an impact. It's not like the minerals where it, there's almost no such thing as a conflict-free mineral, and now it's the beginning of the campaign is the idea of a conflict-free mineral, and maybe we can create a demand. This is where it's actually moving along and having an impact on what tomato you buy. Can I, can I just ask, I mean, again, uneducated, naive, I guess, that this would be going on in my own country today. So I would love to know where it is in our country that they, that people will be shot and they're not paid and they pick, pick tomatoes. And where's the, where's the government? Where's the police? Where is this happening? Well, right in Los Angeles. Angeles. Everywhere. The L.A. port is the biggest uh, influx of uh, slavery. No, no. Texas, Florida, you don't have to go the slave next door at the library. Check it out. Because I'm curious how, if this is public, how this, in today's world, that's against the law. Yeah. How they are not rounded up, people that cause There's a lot, a lot of, of things. There's a lot of things. The instances in these book are the few cases where people have been found out and prosecuted. It's the but but the resources of the FBI, the resources of US attorneys, they cannot get to the millions of people who are suffering because it takes so much to do it. But I read that book, it's a great place to start. Kevin Bales. The author. The slave next door. Yeah. And, you know, <coughs> and in people's homes, right? You know, right. slave labor in people's homes that, that we know is happening in our country. We know this. Well, I know what I know is that there are young girls that go to the mall that people say, hey, you want to be a mall? I don't know. Let's go take pictures. And they get, they get, there's that, that's going on. That's human trafficking that. My husband's radio station did a whole expose on that, so I'm I'm aware of that going on, but I'm I'm I have no unearthly idea that that the tomato example was going on in my own country. I know it's going on in Africa, and it's easy to say, oh, it's over there, but that would never happen in my country. But clearly, it is. It is. It all happens in this country. Well, I know that, for instance, in Canada, we find out in Quebec, there's certain areas where it's uh, Oriental people living. They have castles. It's so huge. But in the bottom, at the basement, it's a factory, and people are slave there. They're doing the sewing machine by the hundreds of hundreds, and it's all... It's amazing, and there's nothing. It's very hard to to get into that because they're bringing people from other countries to do the work who are disempowered, mm-hmm. and then have no recourse because if they, to your point, Nicole, if they do speak, their I mean, their lives or their children's lives right. are, are gone, and so well, that's the, 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 the so the, it's the same thing when you say how could it be happening here, and people suspect. But it's not cracked down on. Who who are you going to get your information from? The, and th- their resources, they're going to devote amazing amounts of resources to hiding or intimidating or threatening or shipping off anybody who's got right. They're, they have a lot of resources to spend on hiding and moving around or you know covering up than the like than than the agencies do to bust it and have proof enough to to bring it. To court. I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is, it shouldn't be that shocking to us right. that we don't know. 
that, that it's hard to find out and get evidence. If, remember in Dachau, if you walked on the grass and not, and on the, if you left the gravel and walked on the grass, you were shot. Well, just watch The Sopranos. I mean, it, <laughs> of course. The Sopranos, right? It, 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 it's every, it's pervasive. It's, it's, it's right in our faces. Like, you know, we just, we often don't, we often don't see what we don't See, the insecticide. Right. Okay, so can I just clarify what my original reaction is? I, I agree with all of this conversation, and I think you said it beautifully. I mean, it resonates. The part where, you know, I sort of um, pushed back a little bit in the beginning is when we look at it from the standpoint of, you know, we are all turning a blind eye, right? That, you know, we're not going to sleep saying we've done enough. I mean, it's like, you know what, there's always more that we can do. And I think the, the issue for me and for many people is really, you know, what can I do each day a little bit to make the world a better place? Right? When I'm at the table with my kids, frequently we say, like, what mitzvah did you do today? And everybody has their issue in this world because there are so many issues where there's mm-hmm. environmental, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't do it all, so you know, what becomes important where you want to take some of your time and some of your passion to try and make the world a bit of a better place and, and have an impact. And every I day that you feel good with your level, that's great. But I think it's just the judgmental, you know, message of, you know, the, the sort of um, hyperbole of, you know, we all turn to blind. That, that, to me, is a little... I don't think I'm hyperbolizing, and I stand by my statement. We turn a blind eye to a lot of this happening... A lot of it we know about, and a lot we don't do anything about. If you're comfortable going to sleep at night with that, gesundte hate. I'm not here to judge what you do or don't do in a day. I feel like I don't do enough, and as a society, I feel we are certainly not doing enough. As the most powerful, richest democracy in the history of the world, I do not feel we focus nearly enough on the issues of human rights and what we can and should be doing as a populace to level the playing field. And it goes from every policy we vote for or don't vote for to the, the, the fact that we're willing to shop at Walmart. Right? Whatever it is, and I'm not saying we're, we're going to be perfect and someday we're going to get it all right. And, but our job, according to Torah, is to push harder than we are is to work for a more just society than the one we've created. Well, I agree with that last statement. Fair. Yes? I'm also judged by that. I feel like, yeah, me too. <laughs> I did not go to sleep worrying about my sweatpants, and I'm not going to tonight, but I know, you know, I could do more. But worrying. But then we wouldn't have a Jewish culture if it doesn't worry and think that was effective. I'm wearing out in your way that's like, yeah, that's true. Uh, but, I, but I also, I also just, it's, it's true. Uh, we can move on. Uh, okay. This is a great conversation. Right. I want to get to Richard, who has had his hand up. Sarah, I think the greatness about this was the specificity that some of us didn't know about. I appreciate Laura for mentioning the title and author of that book because I did, I knew nothing about it. And I think when we know about a specific thing then we can do something about it. Mm-hmm. So our responsibility is to know specific things. Mm-hmm. Richard? Uh, and this is actually, this is what I have to say before. <laughs> <laughs> Just in, 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 in deference to Rick, though, even if I read, even if I, I heard about the things that was, <clears throat> even if I go read the book and become much more aware of it, there are, you know, I'm really into math education, and I think that the biggest contribution that I can make to the world is to improve math education in this country. So that's what I'm spending like all of my time on, doing right now, all, all my available. Okay. Now I think that's a good thing to do. That's not <laughs> to say that I don't think all the other things, all the other issues of the world, don't merit my attention or have some claim on my time. But not every issue can take an equal share of my time. It can take an equal part of my concern, but it can't take all of my energy. So it's not like I choose to ignore slavery in this country or in other countries. It's like, well, there are other people who can't do what I'm trying to do with math, 
And so I'll work on the math and I'll let them worry about the slavery. But it's not like I'm not saying it's... That's all you can do. Oh, that's all I can do. Mm-hmm. But to get back to what I was trying to do, <laughs> back to the text, I had a question, because we're trying to answer those, the question of those two verses at the end, but before we get there, I'm not convinced that there's a difference. It seems to me that there's still a difference between... It's not... Uh, uh, kinsman slave. I think it's kinsman resident alien slave. I think the resident alien has a different status mm-hmm. yeah. than the slave. In other words, if you had a... Oh, right, right, right. I thought the question was, is an Israelite treated differently in terms of labor indenture than a resident alien? Yes. But the resident alien is not necessarily a slave. No, no. Right, right, right. But if they but become... A, oh, yes. a slave, they are treated oh, yes. differently than yes. an Israelite yes. who is right. indentured. Right. That that was my only point. Okay. Sorry, by Israeli resident cannot be a slave. Uh, they can become Israeli one, but an Israelite cannot. What's their as an Israelite resident alien? Right. Israeli cannot be a slave. The resident alien in Israel can become one. Can become a slave. Yeah. Start out as a slave. Right. Right. All right. Um, and by the way, there's a lot of legislation in Torah about slavery and what one can and cannot do regarding a slave. Um, way lots of legislation that did not exist in this country. So even though it was part of their system, and that's not something we would support, thank God, you know, we've evolved. Um, People did to slaves things in this country that were never allowed under Torah law, ever. So that our humanity was dictated by how we treated other human beings always. Even if they were, um, you know, what Torah would call property, it's... What's an example of something that Torah forbids that happened in American slavery? So someone couldn't just go rape a woman and take her, even in war go rape her and take her as a slave. It says that in the Torah. If you want a woman that you go to war against her people, you win, and you want her, you have to take her into your home, you have to shave her head, cut her nails, take all of her clothing off her and give her mourning attire, and let her sit in mourning for her family that you murdered, and you, you collectively murdered, and then if you want her, you have to marry her. So she has rights. Does she have to consent to the marriage? No. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, she... <laughs> there's some dignity in that. But there's a, there's a sense of you want it, but you want it because she's so beautiful, she's so this, she's so that. Well, you need to treat her as a human being and take away all that finery and beauty and then decide, do you still want to be with this person? And if so, you have to treat her as a human being. You can't just... Right now, compare that to right a lot of modern situations in war where I, I just can't even yeah, can't even go there. Shows that there are some differences in religious ideologies right now. Yes, hundred percent, hundred percent. I'm just going to say, furthermore, if you decide later that you don't want her anymore, <clears throat> she's not a slave. She must go free. You have to free her. Okay, so her status changed when you decided you were going to grab her and take her against her will. Her status changed actually a lot in terms of of what you could and couldn't do. Correct. All right. So to this closing line, Richard, you shall not make idols for yourselves comes at the end of all of this legislation. It would have made a lot more sense to stop at the end of the legislation and then have this next piece being about idolatry and Shabbat and if you follow my laws faithfully, like that all kind of goes together, right? All right, so um, you've got a piece in front of you um, by Yehuda Kurtzer. We love Yehuda Kurtzer from Hartman Institute. Uh, and he ties that line back to right some of this idea of building a just and equitable society and he says when is idealism idolatry right so you shall not make idols for yourselves comes at the end what's the connection between idolatry and what we've been talking about he makes a connection between that right 
And he says, um, he's talking about the time where there were, you know, the massive um, protests in Israel about affordable housing and other kinds of um, social inequities that were happening. Um, so he talks about the 2011 protests uh, here, the tent camps, um, when he talks about the Occupy movement. So he's got, we've got the 2011 protests in Israel and all those tent cities and the American Occupy movement, right? So drop down to the third paragraph. He says, I understand where the extremism comes from. The instinct to act on behalf of justice is often born out of a sense of deep brokenness and the belief that the prevailing structures of power and authority are fundamentally misguided. Accordingly, it is believed that to promote incremental policy change without redressing the basic infrastructure that underlies the fabric of our societies, even if it creates temporarily better conditions, will not lead to societal transformation. But this political pluralism, in turn, makes the work of justice a tough sell across the political divide. The iconoclasm of extremism creates fear in the mainstream about the work of justice, even when its goals may accord with mainstream ethical sensibilities. Do you understand what's... Right? I believe that there is important work to be done in bringing about justice in this world, both on concrete issues and in more conceptual ways. I also recognize that there are still times when justice can only be pursued through systematic revolutionary overhaul. But I am skeptical of the instincts in America and in Israel to do this urgent work of today against, rather than in concert with, the existing social and political infrastructure. This week's twin portions of Bahar and Bechukotai, which together conclude the book of Leviticus, implicitly challenge the impulse to frame social activism over and against normative legal policies. For me, this resonates incredibly powerfully as I turn on CNN and watch the amount of unrest and agitation and anger and um, the words revolution, you know, being being used. The the rhetoric, you know, of it, it's all got to go, which I think is what what Yehuda Kurtzer is addressing here, right? From the instinct... Sides. From both sides right now. Correct. Absolutely. From, from both sides that are saying, it all has to go. It's completely corrupt, and we got to start over. So the extremes on both ends are saying the same thing, and he says he understands where that unrest and, and anger and demand for big, sweeping change comes from, and he's nervous about what what that actually means, and in seeing our situation, I, I just thought it was timely, so seeing our situation through a total lens, I'm not agreeing with him or disagreeing with him, I think it's a very interesting point. If you look at it through the lens of Torah, it seems to suggest, right, that um, implicitly challenge, the, that, they, that this challenges the impulse to frame social activism over and against normative legal policies that the way Torah gets at trying to create a more just society is through the legislation, through the, the system as it exists to improve it. Torah would love to see slavery gone. But at Torah's time, that was not going to happen. So then what can we do? Right? What, that's what he's suggesting, is that Behar and Bechukotai come to say, we need to work within the legal normative, you know, institutions and processes to get at improving and changing the system. The two portions are held together by a uniforming, a unifying frame, with the opening and closing verses reminding us that these texts were a part of God's revelation to Moses at Mount Sinai. In between these verses, however, is the stuff not of otherworldly spirituality, but the earthly, earthly rules by which a society is made just. So then he goes on to talk about some of them. We already have just talked about them. Um, the theology of this calls for justice. The theology of this call for justice has two key elements. First, it ties the mandate for justice to the Israelite experience as slaves in Egypt. Right when it says you can't make someone another Israelite your slave because they're my servants and I freed them from the land of Egypt, 
thereby connecting altruism with communal experience and giving value to the incremental pursuit of justice. As a result, there are measures built into the Israelite legal system designed to deal with change when it is needed. Interestingly, while the paradigm of Exodus as a revolution is well known to us, here the Torah reminds us that this narrative must also inform how we live life after the revolution by demanding that we create just laws for all members of our society. It's almost like saying bingo. Say more. Say, well, I mean, that sort of ties it all together and what directions we ought to be looking at in order to uh, fetching. And so, revolution, wonderful. What is, what's your policy? What is your program? Lay out exactly how, after the revolution, you're going to live day to day within the system that isn't going to dramatically blow up overnight. Right? I mean, we still have, for the most part, the same system. So what are you, after the revolution, what exactly about those systems are you going to change? What exactly are you asking us to support, and what will it look like? Right? I think... That's what he's coming to talk about. I mean, I, it seems that Yehuda's argument is premised on the idea that you accept first that there's a system that works either well or not well, but isn't biased by undue power by any particular influence. If he's taking into account whether Sheldon Abelson could buy an election for an Arkansas representative and who no longer owes allegiance to the people of Arkansas, then you have a much different system. And I think that's more at the heart of what's going on today. So I think Kurtzer, Kurtzer would say, so why isn't there more pressure, if that's really what you're concerned about, on on right. whatever it's called, um, financing election, you know, like campaign finance reform, that's what it is. you're looking at the violence, that's what it's really means. I mean, they don't believe the system works, that they want, you're, that you're just saying, Go in and change. They're saying we can't do it. So it's already rigged. Kurtzer is saying he understands the impulse to say it's rigged, blow it up. Yeah. He's cautioning us. Yeah. You still need a system. That you, you, you still need a system. Need and so system what? It's all yeah. If you've got a great idea about how to change it, great. But but just the impulse to get rid of it, throw it out. It it's not a bad impulse. The the question I think he's asking, the question that's been helpful for me to think about is, so is there another way to channel that that would make real change? Well, because, well, I think there's a real danger with allowing that kind of extremism to... I, mean, I just read a story about Tots. My, my son's going to school there in September, and there's a group called Students for Peace and Justice, and they are very into the whole BDS movement, very anti-Israel, very pro-Palestinian. And they went to a lot of the Omer barbecue and took the falafel and threw it at the students and said it was cult- cultural appropriation to use, to eat food that's really Arabic. But, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, and they took over the president's office for three days. And so there's this whole thing on college campuses about freedom of speech, and, you know, of course, colleges, especially in places where, where people, especially young people, are very optimistic and they have a sense of outrage. They want to be able to, to express that, but the colleges are also starting to say, if you take over the president's office for three days and inconvenience a lot of people and it's really a problem and costs money, there will be consequences for that. And you can't just go and take a falafel and throw it in someone's face. Mm-hmm. That's bullying. That is actually a form of bullying. It's not. So I think that's what they're saying here is that it's not enough just to scream and shout. There has to be some understanding and some work. And I mean, I actually think this whole extremism thing is really dangerous that we have right now. I think it's. Well, I think that one of the things, though, that on, on both sides, you have such echo chambers on both sides mm-hmm. that, the, that the progressives only like to listen to progressive voices, the conservatives only like to listen to conservative voices. But that's and not both true. Si- I, I know it's not true. Happen. I mean, it's, it's, it's not true at the margin, but it's true to a much larger extent than it should be. The biggest problem, and an even bigger problem, is both sides ascribe bad motives to the other side. And we all, you know, it would be very 
it would be virtually impossible to put 20 people in a room and get them to disagree about the notion that we need to make the world a better place. So, so let, let's, let's look at what Kurtzer says to that, because I think that's exactly where he goes next. Bottom paragraph. I fear sometimes that in our efforts to create more just societies, we can become self-righteous, indulging in the idolatrous practice of worshiping our own ideals, which is what I just heard you say, right? That we, when you demonize the intention of the other, and then I become incredibly self-righteous, right, in in, and then we start worshiping our own ideals. That this is how he ties idolatry into this whole idea of of systemic change. Um, and then the closing paragraph: When justice is part of our founding narrative, we must embrace not just the part of the story about our liberation from tyranny, but also, which is our Egypt story, right? But also the responsibility to use that memory to establish just societies. And when we view this mandate as issuing from God. We become partners in a larger process and we belong to a larger order. Recognition of God's role in the work of justice demands of us great humility. As we cannot revel in our iconoclasm or stand on the periphery and hurl insults at others involved in shaping our societies, rather, we must invest ourselves in the often slow and arduous process of improving our communities, listening carefully for the echo of the exodus and the whispers from Sinai pulsating across space and time. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.